Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the single most destructive idea on the stage of life today, particularly if you're a Christian? Is it atheism? Is it theological liberalism? Is it anti-supernaturalism? How about neo-Darwinism? Is it relativism? Actually, the answer is no. None of those ideas are the single most destructive idea. The idea that leads to those ideas is actually worse. In other words, the single most destructive idea in the stage of life today often leads to atheism, liberalism, anti-supernaturalism, neo-Darwinism, relativism, and a bunch of other toxic isms. And even Christians have swallowed this most destructive idea. The problem is you might not realize it. And that destructive idea is causing you to come to false conclusions. It's kind of like a virus on your computer. You don't even know you have a computer virus sometimes, but that virus is destroying your computer's ability to feed you accurate information. So what is this most destructive idea? We're going to find out today in our conversation with one of the greatest philosophers and apologists of our time, Dr. J.P. Moreland of Biola University. Now, most of you who listen to this program probably know about Dr. Moreland. I've talked about him before, but in case you don't, Dr. Moreland has been teaching apologetics and philosophy for more than 45 years. He presently serves as the Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Biola. His PhD is, is in philosophy from the University of Southern California, but he also has a master's in theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. He has a BS in physical chemistry from the University of Missouri. He's written or contributed uh, to more than 90 books, including you've probably heard of Loving God with All Your Mind, The Kingdom Triangle, The Soul, What We Know, uh, what we know it's How We Know It's Real and Why It Really Matters, a brand new tome on theistic evolution he helped edit called Theistic Evolution, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique, and a brand new book that we'll reveal here in a few minutes. It has to do with the single most destructive idea out there. JP, wonderful having you on the show. How are you? Well, Frank, I'm doing well, especially by being on your show. I've admired your ministry and uh, your your life work for so many years, and it's great to connect with you, uh, my fellow soldier and co-laborer. It's just it's just going to be fun to be together. Well, it definitely, and I was enthralled with your presentation at the Evangelical Theological or Philosophical Society a couple of weeks ago in Denver. We didn't really get a chance to meet you; had to you had to leave, but you did a wonderful presentation on the most destructive idea out there. So enough with the, with the suspense, JP. What is it? What is the most destructive idea out there? Right. And, and this, this is what really motivated me to write the book. Uh, the most destructive idea, and uh, as Dallas Willard says, uh, and I put this in the very beginning, um, is the idea that the hard sciences and the hard sciences alone have the right to define reality and claim to have the truth. And no other field besides the hard sciences can claim to present knowledge of reality. And so let me just say it again. The basic idea is that if you want to know what's real, then you have to look to physics and chemistry and 
uh, neuroscience. And if they if they certify some claim through their uh, tests and so on, well, then you you don't just believe it. You can know it's real. You don't legislate chemistry by saying, "Don't drink this in the speaker. It's hydrochloric acid." Hey, dude, stop legislating chemistry. <laughs> That's your view, and nobody does that. Mm-hmm. And in every field outside of science, especially, oh, especially ethical and theological and religious and political claims that are made outside the hard sciences turn out not to be things anybody can know. And so relativism prevails in those areas, because if we can't know who's right, then everybody has the right to to guess and to make up their own answer to life's ultimate questions about God, whoever she is, or, and about, you know, or they are, or and so on. So that's essentially what it is. And this idea is called scientism, and that's the subject of your new book. The book is called Scientism and Secularism, Learning to Respond to a Dangerous Ideology by my guest today, Dr. J.P. Moreland of Biola University. Uh, this book is about 15 chapters long, only about 198 pages, so you can get through it relatively quickly, and you need to, friends, because uh, there are a lot of great insights in here. In fact, you said something, JP, at EPS that was one of those aha moments for me, uh, and we're going to get to it here in a few minutes, and then you unpack it in the book that I think is worth just the price of the book itself. But before we get there, I want to ask you this. Uh, you you point out that scientism— uh, has several or creates several problems for Christianity. One of the problems it creates for Christianity is that it makes Christianity's claims seem implausible, maybe even impossible. Can you explain why? Yeah. Um, uh, something is implausible if people wouldn't be willing to go to a meeting and, and hear a presentation about it. They say, look, I'm going to waste my time. That is so wild. It's just stupid. Now, there, if somebody tried to lecture that the earth was flat, that would be an example. Now, there are other things that a person says, well, I don't believe in these things, uh, whatever. But but it, it's plausible. Maybe it's true. I'm willing to hear. I'm willing to hear this guy. I'm going to go listen to his lecture and see what he's saying. And uh, so that would be something that could be considered plausible. Now, think about it. If you if you limit knowledge to what we can actually know, to just claims in physics and chemistry, then it's going to turn out that in the religious assertions and ethical assertions are just things that absolutely nobody can know. That's by the way why Oprah Winfrey feels complete freedom on television to speak about theology and about God, uh, because there are no experts. An expert would be somebody that has the knowledge in an area, uh, uh, like a dentist or somebody like that. Well, there aren't any experts outside the hard sciences, because nobody knows who's right. And so these areas devolve into just expressions of private feeling. Well, you have your feelings about God and, and abortion and homosexuality, and I have my feelings, and you know they're they're true for me, and yours are true for you. Nobody can know who's right. So, what happens to Christianity? It's no longer considered something to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. You can dismiss it because I don't like your feelings. I mean, you're telling me these Jesus feelings, and good for you, but. All they are are your emotions, and I just don't 
have any reason why I need to take to listen to you anymore. I'm going to dismiss the whole deal because it's not our, it's not a claim in physics or chemistry. Now, we're going to get to it probably right after the break. We're going to critique scientism. Uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland will do it for us. But before we get there, J.P., I want to ask you this. You mentioned at ATS that at ETS that we not only have to show that Christianity is true, but we also have to show that people can know it's true. Now, why, why did yes. you say that? Yes. Yeah, the fundamental issue today is not just the truth of Christianity, but whether we can actually know it's true. Now, why is that? Knowledge is what gives people the authority and the right to define reality and to speak with authority and courage in a subject. For example, dentists can stand up in a public place and, and give a lecture on dental implants or molars because we assume that they have knowledge about this part of reality. That, and, and so they have that right. And, and by the way, dentists speak very boldly and confidently. They're not ashamed of what they're saying. If my dentist came up to me and said, I don't know a thing about molars, i got to be honest with you, but I have some very, very deeply, deeply held beliefs that mean a lot to me. And so much so that I've actually hired a musician and I've got CDs that uh, celebrate molars and listen to the music in my car. And I don't want to work on your molars, but I don't really know anything about them. Well, if somebody said that to me, he's not going to get 100 miles from my mouth. All right, hold the thought, J.P. We're going to come back. We're talking to Dr. J.P. Moreland. His new book, Scientism and Secularism, you need to get. It reveals and refutes the most dangerous idea out there. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in two minutes. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. What is the most dangerous or destructive idea out there. That's what we're talking about today with Dr. J.P. Moreland, his new book, Scientism and Secularism, Learning to Respond to a Dangerous Ideology. And uh, J.P., just before the break, uh, you were talking about an analogy about uh, a dentist knowing molars. And why don't you just pick it up there and complete the thought? Well, that's what it's because the dentist has knowledge, not just a, some beliefs that may actually turn out to be true, that that he can define reality about in regarding the mouth, and he can speak with authority in public, and he has courage. And the reasons that Christians don't have courage to witness is because they don't take their claims to be things that they actually know are true. They think they believe they're true. But that doesn't give you the, if the right to define, you know, how we're made right with God or whether there is a God or all those things. That, that requires knowing something. And since the whole culture is bought into scientism, religion now is marginalized. Mm -hmm. Christian uh, leaders speak on uh, talk shows and on the evening news. And they're they're sort of like doing the national anthem before the football game. They're they're not really taking a serious authorities on anything. And uh, when Christians share their faith, they they do so 
because they believe it's true, they hope it's true, but uh, they think it's 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 true by faith, where faith is just an arbitrary decision to accept something rather than the, what I think the biblical view is, and that's trust or confidence based on what we know. And so Abraham had trust or confidence in God because he knew something about God, even though he didn't know what was going on at that moment. But still, his trust was based on knowledge. Well, scientism says you can't have that. Mm. So it's mm. just pushed us in the corner, uh, my brother. It's it's caused people to lose their boldness and courage. And and Peter warned us about this. He said, you know, if you, if you want to not fear their intimidation, uh, you know, humble yourself, but then know know why you believe what you believe. And that is what we're not communicating to our kids. They're leaving book- in groves. This book, Scientism and Secularism, will help you articulate not only why you believe what you believe, but why you can know what you believe is true. And in fact, JP, you cite six on page 39 here of the book, you cite six um, results from a Barner survey that reveals why kids are leaving the church. They appear to be all intellectual issues uh, and they appear to be exacerbated by scientism. Can you kind of unpack that for us? Oh, yeah, you are so right. I was shocked when I saw this um, uh, because Barna, you know, did this very extensive poll as to why people from, say, 37 or so uh, down were leaving the church and even leaving theism, belief in God. Hmm. And um, the, the, the reasons were all intellectual. Um, I don't have the page right before me. Uh, what page was it? It's page 39. I can go quickly if you want. If you okay, yeah. Uh, the church shallowness of thought, including its biblical teachings and practices, was number one. The The second one was feeling that it's unsafe to express doubts and get answers. Um, and the third is to uh, failure to interact with the surrounding culture, which I guess would include science as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, an anti-science attitude, being out of step with particular scientific developments and debate. All these, actually, there were yeah. four of them. I, had, I said six. There's only four of them. But they're all intellectual, JP. They are. And what's shocking yeah. is none of them was uh, the worship music's bad. I don't <laughs> feel welcome and unfolded in the community. Mm-hmm. Uh, the preaching is not interesting. Now, I believe in all those things. But look. People, if they're going to buy into something, they have to have some sense of confidence that this, what they're buying into is actually real, or why would they give their lives to it? Mm. And as you just pointed out, every single one of the things they discovered as to why our kids are leaving the church were intellectual. They don't know, they do not know why they believe what they believe, and scientism has, has actually told our kids, which is communicated through the public schools, that not that you can't know why you believe what you believe, because you can't prove the claims of religion or morality scientifically. And so the whole project of trying to give reasons for it and to claim that you could know that God's real or, or whatever— uh, it's just a stupid project, and so we're losing our kids, and parents have got to wake up. They've got to support apologetic ministries like yours. Uh, they've got to begin to, to listen to talk radio that's Christian, because that's really the only place that they're, 
people are getting fed today, uh, the main place. And uh, they need to read selectively in books that will help them train their kids and, their, and the youth in the church why we believe what we believe. And that's so crucial today. Well, here's a book that can help you. It's called Scientism and Secularism by J.P. Moreland. He's my guest today. And every chapter in here, it can almost be standalone, J.P. I'm looking at chapter four right now. We might as well hit scientism head on right now. Scientism, the idea that says all truth comes from science, you claim is self-defeating. Why don't you unpack that for us? Well, you know, a self-defeating statement is something that does not live up to its own standards of acceptability. So if I say all, no sentence of English is longer than three words, uh, that sets up a standard for something to be an English sentence. Namely, it's got, it, it can't be longer than three words. Well, then look at my statement. Well, it's longer than three words, and, and it, so it can't be a statement of English. And yet I know full well that I just said it in English. And so it's self-refuting. It, re, it makes itself false. Uh, a, a guy came up to me uh, at a little evangelistic event I, I was giving, and I was warned he was coming, and he had a Ph.D. in physics from Johns Hopkins that had been an engineer for 30 years. And uh, before the meeting, I'm sitting, he walks over to me and says, hey, I understand that you're a philosopher and theologian. And I said, well, you know, I, I give him my best shot. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I used to be interested in that kind of stuff myself when I was a teenager. When I grew up intellectually and matured in my intellectual life, I began to realize that if you can't quantify your data and test it empirically in the laboratory, it's nothing but a bunch of idle opinion and hot air. Well, he went on for a couple of minutes, and I stopped him and said, I got a problem. Maybe you can help me. Uh, You've made 20 or 30 assertions, and I can't think of a single thing that you've said that could be quantified and tested in the laboratory. If you've made a statement that can, please tell me which one it was. Mm-hmm. But you see, if I'm right about that, then I, the thing that follows by your own standards is that what you've been doing the last two or three minutes is spewing nothing but idle opinion and hot air. <laughs> and boy, this guy, I kid you not, he turned <laughs> pale white. I don't know why people don't think about this, but he just never heard that. And the statement that the only truth and knowledge, especially knowledge that you can have, is that which comes to the hard sciences, this guy took himself to know that. Hmm. But that statement is not a statement of science. You right. can't test it in the lab. It's a philosophical statement, and it's therefore self-refuting. So don't let people get away with making statements like that. Well, JP, this in my view, is the most important thinking skill our listeners need to get a hold of. And that is to identify self-refuting statements, because there are so many self-refuting statements that you point out in the book. And again, friends, the book is called Scientism and Secularism by my my guest today, Dr. J.P. Moreland from Biola University. There's so many in here, J.P., that, uh, I mean, atheism just... Yeah, it it is so... I I just can't believe that people don't see this. I agree. You sit there and you think... (laughs) How could they not see that they're they're contradicting themselves? It just it just drives you nuts. You can't. What's going on out there? Well, I don't, well uh, they're not they're not being taught logic. That's for sure. Maybe they're going to go to Biola sure. and take a class. 
Absolutely. But anyway, JP, this is the point that blew me out of my chair there at EPS a couple of weeks ago when you were doing this presentation. You made this brilliant point, um, and you unpack it here in the book. And the point is, is that philosophical, moral, and rational claims are more certain than scientific claims. I mean, that seems so counterintuitive to people who have the virus of scientism. You know, that science claims to be empirically demonstrated by by scientists and philosophers, you know, they don't agree on anything, but it's actually true that philosophical claims are more certain than scientific ones. So can you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah. uh, There, there are two, two areas where this is true. Uh, First of all, there are a number of assumptions that science are based on. And uh, every single one of those assumptions is significantly rejected by a substantial portion of the academic community. And, uh, and the task of stating those assumptions and defending them or, or critiquing them is not a task of science, it's a task of philosophy. Now, a viewpoint can't be any stronger than the assumptions on which it rests. And so if science is built upon shaky, uh, indefensible assumptions, then we would just have to say, well, science works, it's pragmatically useful, but it doesn't really give us knowledge of reality, so let, let's face it, uh, because we can't justify the assumptions of science. And those are things like uh, a, a certain view of what truth is, uh, a view of what, what it is to know something and what a good explanation looks like. Uh, the laws of logic and mathematics, which are known in an a priori fashion, which just means that they are not known uh, by appealing to sense experiences to justify them, like the claim all ravens are black requires that I've seen a number of ravens and they've all been black and my sample's good, so I think I can generalize now. No, two plus two equals four isn't something that I say, well, you know, gosh, I've seen a whole bunch of times when I've added two and two and it turned out to be four, I think probably it's going to be that way from now on for a while. <laughs> I guess I could get two and two equals seven, but it's unlikely. Now, two plus two equals four is a necessary truth, and it's known by direct rational intuition. Uh, when logicians and mathematics do their proofs, they don't do empirical research. Mm. And so these assumptions, I could go on, science presupposes a moral value is true. Right. Uh, report your test data honestly, and, and, and don't cheat when you're, when you're doing your reports. Uh, science would fall apart if that moral principle were not governing their work. We're talking to Dr. J.P. Moreland. Sorry, J.P., we're coming up a hard break. His book, Scientism and Secularism, we're just scratching the surface, ladies and gentlemen. You need to get this book because this could be the single most destructive idea out there. You might believe it and not know it. Again, Scientism and Secularism by J.P. Moreland. I'm Frank Turk. We're back in two. Don't go away. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. In fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero 
25% go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examine, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. Frank Turek with you. Website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. And oh, before I forget, would you go on up to our iTunes page? Um, there are two feeds for the uh, podcast. Look for the one with my picture on it. I don't do all that stuff uh, Jorge does, but um, he says we need some more reviews, five-star reviews, ladies and gentlemen, on our podcast, because the more good reviews that are up there, the more people will see this podcast and therefore listen to it. So if you would go up there and put a review, a positive review up there uh, at the Cross-Examined Podcast on iTunes, that would be very helpful. And I'm going to start reading some of your reviews on the air, but not today because we have a special guest, Dr. J.P. Moreland, his brand new book, Scientism and Secularism. By the way, also J.P. also co-wrote Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview with Dr. William Lane Craig. Uh, so that is a, a, an, an amazing work that you need to have in your library. Uh, but today we're talking about this issue of scientism. And J.P., we we're in the middle of talking about the fact that the point you make uh, in scientism and secularism, that these moral rational and philosophical claims we can know with more certainty than scientific claims yes i say say blew me out of my chair because we hear exactly the opposite oh we do and 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 and, can continue the discussion there because that was there's such a radical point that's so true when you think about it people don't know it is true frank you're absolutely right I mean, the idea that, you know, that we know electrons exist with greater certainty than we know that, you know, some moral claim is true is is just everybody would say, well, of course. But I was saying that the assumptions of science have got to be known with greater certainty than the claims of science itself, because the claims of science can't go beyond the strength of its assumptions. And those assumptions, whether you like it or not, are philosophical Hmm. in nature. And so... Uh, that was one area why even weak scientism, uh, which is is the view that science isn't the only way we can know things, but that it is there may be a little bit of justification for claims and ethics or whatever. But uh, science is so much vastly superior that when it comes in conflict, then you with another claim from a field you have to revise it. So that's why the Bible's constantly being revised. Because, well, neuroscientists say there's no soul, and we'd say, well, okay, that's fine. We, we're we not Greek dualists anyway. Uh, the Bible, you know, science says that neuroso- that uh, homosexualities, you know, are caused by your genes. Oh, well, that's okay. You know, we don't think the Bible's really against homosexuality. You know, you know how it goes. Mm-hmm. So um, what's driving all that is, is uh, this weak or strong scientism. And I made the claim that these other that these assumptions of science can are, are philosophical and have to be known with greater certainty than the claims of science itself. But there's a third argument against scientism. The first is it's self-refuting. The second is that the assumptions of science are only formulatable and defendable, defended by philosophy, and scientism makes that defense impossible by limiting what we can know to science itself. And so 
It's an enemy of science. That's the second argument. The third argument is that there are areas completely outside science that we know with greater certainty than we know some things in science, not all. And I, this is where I raised the story of what happened when I went to the hospital for my colon cancer surgery. Right. Uh, I was in there for nine days after surgery. It was a pretty brutal surgery. And I had a whole bunch of nursing teams come to see me. And one day this nurse and a couple of other nurses come in. And she says, well, how are you doing today? And I said, I'm doing fine. And she says, well, what do you do, sir? And I said, well, it's a kind of a long story. But I, I ended up saying I teach philosophy. Uh, I also have a degree in theology, but I began as a physical chemist at the University of Missouri, and she got real, she got a real puzzling look on her face. I said, "Well, that's that's very interesting." And I said, "Before you tell me what you're thinking, I'd like to make a guess of what you're thinking. Is that okay?" Well, yeah, sure, of course. And I said, "What you're thinking is that I started off in a field where I could actually have knowledge of what was true and false, namely chemistry." And I turned that in, that field that studied hard facts, and you could really prove whether you were right and wrong, to fields like theology and philosophy where it's just nobody knows. I mean, it's kind of just, you know, you have your opinions and views and somebody else has their, theirs, and it's just shuffling paradigms. And I, I kid you not, Frank, she said, how did you know that? That's exactly what I was thinking. And I said, well, I've encountered this before. And I said, do you know that you can know that torturing babies for the fun of it is wrong with greater certainty than you can know that there are such things as electrons? Mm. Well, her jaw dropped. And, I, and she said, no. I said, let me prove it to you. I said, do you know anything about the history of the electron? And she said, well, no. And I said, well, there was... A few centuries ago, there was a German wave electron, and then there was a J.J. Thompson particle electron where there were 1,837 electrons embedded in an atom like raisins in plum pudding. They were stationary. Uh, then there was a view of the electron that attracted protons by creating a vortex through the ether, uh, and it was sort of a Newtonian mechanical view of force. Then they finally attributed real forces to the electron instead of a mechanical ability to create a vortex. Then there was the Bohr electron, and now there's the quantum electron. Now, when you ask me, do I believe in an electron, which one do you mean? Mm. She said, well, I never thought of that. And I said, well, you probably mean the one we hold right now. But I want to ask you this. I said, Given the history of how electro the electron has just radically changed, and we don't believe there were Thomsonian electrons or Bohr electrons, they they just didn't exist. Is it isn't it reasonable that in fifty years we might come up with new information that would cause us to have to admit that the current model of the electron just there's no such thing that exists. It was wrong. Sure. Yeah. But I can't imagine any new facts we could discover in the next 50 years that would make the claim it's wrong to torture little babies for the fun of it, something that we no longer could know to be true. Mm. Now, I could imagine the culture shifting to where people didn't believe that anymore, but that's not my claim. We know that proposition is true. We just, we know it. And 
there's no fact that we could discover that would overturn our knowledge that it's just wrong to torture little babies for fun. Mm. So there's an example, I said, of where there's a, an assertion in ethics that I know with greater certainty than I know a, a claim in physics, or namely that there are such things as electrons, because that claim could be falsified the next 50 years. Right. And so yeah. it was quite a conversation, but that is what I want people to realize that our our theological and our ethical assertions are not second-class citizens. Mm-mm. And please don't drink the Kool-Aid, and don't let your kids drink the Kool-Aid. Learn how to refute this ideology, because it's nonsense. In fact, people don't realize that science is downstream of philosophy. Uh, or we could put it another way, that philosophy is the foundation of science. It's like yeah. a house can only be as strong as its foundation, as you mentioned earlier, JP. So your science can only be as strong as your philosophical rational or, or rational and moral pylons that you put science on. And Absolutely. Pe- people don't realize that. I mean, you even mentioned Stephen Hawking in here who famously says philosophy is dead and the whole rest of his book is all philosophy. <laughs> oh, it was. Does that drive you, again, drive you nuts? Oh, yeah. I, I, here's I, the, one of the smartest scientists <laughs> in the world who, who is, I think Al Planning has said his book would, he would, if it was an undergrad paper, he'd give him a C minus, you know? Well, I remember you having that conversation with, um, uh, it was you, Hewitt, and on the panel was you, John Lennox, and uh, William Lane Craig, probably about two mm-hmm. or three years ago. And uh, I just love John Lennox on this when he says something. He says, um, when nonsense is spoken of by, by brilliant scientists, it's still nonsense. <laughs> and that's what's going on. You got, and it's these, as you know, JP, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but these things are elementary logical right. uh, conundrum, or, or I should say right. self-defeating statements are just mistakes in logic right. that, that people don't get. No, and, 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 and it's because they're not taught philosophy mm-hmm. anymore. They think it's psychology misspelled. And uh, right. they, they don't have any place where they learn a little bit of how to think these things through logically. And so they're kind of subject, you know, gosh, I don't know any physics and chemistry. Those guys sure seem smart. Uh-huh. So I'm going to, I'm going to say my religion is a personal thing. I hold by blind faith and science is publicly objectively knowable. Hmm. Well, boy, that's going to, we're going to keep our kids if we have that view for a long time, aren't we? Right, right. No, they're, they're leaving in droves. And, and as Barna said, it's for intellectual reasons. Now, yeah, they don't realize either that science doesn't say anything scientists do. And too often, these scientists are using their atheistic philosophy to interpret the data in exactly. a way that favors atheism. It's a, it's a, it's a done deal before they even look at the evidence. They're never going to, as you point out, in fact, we're talking to J.P. Moreland, for those who are just tuning in. His book is Scientism and Secularism. J.P., you have a whole chapter in here on intelligent design, too, and methodological Absolutely. naturalism. And we only got about a minute before the break, but maybe you can give us a little bit on that. Well, very quickly, I, I, I try to show the intelligent design theory is, is scientific and that it has a right to be uh, explaining the data, and it does so better than a, a naturalistic Darwinian view. And so that's the purpose of that. But after the break, uh, we'll talk, I'd like to make a point about uh, something I claim in the book that I think will help your listeners. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
We're talking again to J.P. Moreland. His book is called Scientism and Secularism, Learning to Respond to it, a Dangerous Ideology. And this ideology, friends, as J.P. has been laying out for us, is scientism or sometimes called strong scientism and weak scientism. And as J.P. will show you in this book, which you need to get, first of all, it's self-defeating, and there are several other problems with it. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the book, as I mentioned earlier, is 15 chapters long. He's got several illustrations in here. Uh, and it's a relatively quick read that uh, you need to read. Don't just give, by the way, parents, don't just give this to your kids and say, read this. You read it with them, okay? You read it and discuss it with them because this is important. This is the foundation of what is being taught very frequently in our college uh, lecture halls, scientism, and then kids come home unprepared. They wind up leaving the faith or at least leaving the church, and many of them never come back. So... We're going to talk about several other issues when we come back with my guest, J.P. Moreland. Again, his book, Scientism and Secularism. You don't want to miss it. Uh, Check out the book as well. Get it at Amazon or anywhere fine books are sold. And you can check out J.P. at the Biola University website, biola.edu. I'm Frank Turk. We're back in two minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. There's two ways to learn things, friends. You can learn through your own experience or you can learn through someone else's experience and you don't have enough time to learn through your own experience. That's why if you want to learn, you've got to read other people. If you want to be a reader, or I should say, if you want to be a leader, you got to be a reader. You need to read this new book by J.P. Moreland called Scientism and Secularism. Now, J.P., Before we go any further, we've got to deal with this issue that people bring up. They say, look, a majority of scientists agree with macroevolution. You can't go up against that. That's a lost cause. Why would you go up against the majority of scientists? What do you say to that? Well, uh, if, if there are two things present, then it's reasonable to go against the majority of experts in a field. And the first one is if you can explain why the experts agree in a way that is independent of the evidence. In other words, it's not the evidence that's causing them to agree. It's something else. And I think when it comes to evolution, there are two things that have caused evolutionists uh, to the experts to agree about it. And the first was that uh, it was the it was an attempt evolution was an attempt to get theology out of science and completely naturalize science so that it didn't have to ask theologians uh, you know what they make of the fossil record uh this is this is a known fact it's in a book by uh neil gillespie called charles darwin and the problem of creation University of Chicago Press, so he's a secular historian. So I can explain why evolution is the accepted view among the experts, not because the evidence supports it, but because they want to get theology or any reference to God and out of science and completely naturalize science. So they've set up rules that would disallow any 
any reference to God being the cause of uh, information or design. The, the second thing we could say would be that the way uh, new PhDs and graduate students are sociologized or socialized into the group of biologists or paleontologists is is such that if you break from the herd and do not accept the naturalistic theory of evolution, then there is institutionalized shaming, mm. uh, punishments. Uh, you you know you can't complete your uh, your doctoral dissertation. You'll be ostracized in the lunchroom. I know I know of cases of all this, and so I can explain the the fact that the experts. All, all 99% of the experts agree because of the desire to get God out of science and uh, the desire to keep the group homogeneous about this and not break with the herd. That has nothing to do with the evidence. So I don't I think the experts are agreeing because the evidence is in their favor. And the second, that's the first reason. The second uh, basic reason that it's okay to break with the experts the majority of them, is that there's a highly trained group of intellectually sophisticated rebel rebels that have earned their credentials. They have got doctorates from good universities, and they've published with good venues, and they hold and have given a robust defense of a minority view. Um, Thomas Kuhn in The Structure of Scientific Revolution said it's often these rebel groups who are beat no kidding, he said they're ostracized by scientists, by the main group. They're called pseudoscientists. But it's often these rebel groups that end up overthrowing the major paradigm. And so I think that that's where we're at today. And so that, and I mentioned this in the book and make it clear that the argument, well, you guys are nuts because almost 99% of the scientists in the world hold this. Well, I have that response I can give back to them. Well, the book, again, is called Scientism and Secularism by J.P. Moreland, my guest today. And J.P., you, you even have a story in here about Bill Dembski, who uh, has several PhDs. Um, mm -hmm. He went to UCAL Berkeley to give a lecture on intelligent design, and the biology department told their students to boycott the lecture rather than go there and engage him with better arguments. Why do you think that was? Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I was up. I was up at Berkeley giving an evangelistic talk on the historical Jesus, and and I'd heard from some Christians that Dembski had been there two weeks earlier to give a public lecture on ID, and like you said, the biology department boycotted it. They would not let their grad students and their undergrad majors go to it. And I'm thinking, well, if if if, if this view, if ID is so stupid, mm -hmm. then just. It would be like shooting a fish in a barrel. Just right. sick your grad students on on this guy, and go make a fool out of him in front of this huge audience. Uh, and so, but, but Dembski is got you. This guy's no lightweight. He's, he's he, maybe he's wrong. I don't think he is. No, he's not. But he is smart <laughs> as heck, man. And That's right. Well educated. Can't just blow him off like that. And it, it it just showed that this issue is not about the evidence, like mm -hmm. I said a moment ago. This is about biology keeping its all of its cows together and keeping its authority and culture, right. because scientism 
is a precious thing that if you've, if you've got it, you safeguard it because it gives you the authority to pontificate uh, mm. over everything else. You know, the news goes to scientists. It doesn't go to ethicists or theologians to get right. advice about culture. And, and that's what the bio—they love that. Mm-hmm. They want to mm-hmm. protect it. And you also quote Thomas Nagel, the famous philosophical atheist, who said, I, don't, I not only don't believe in God, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be that way. And he talks about a cosmic authority problem. And Christopher Hitchens actually kind of admitted that in one of my debates with him. He, he ulti- ultimately boiled down to, to sexual ethics was the real issue. I mean, exactly. that's boy. Now, we can't say that's true for everyone, obviously. But really, at the end of the day, and JP, I ask students a lot when they come to an I don't have enough faith to be an atheist presentation. If they're atheists, I'll ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And many of them will say no. That's right. And, and the reason is it's, it's morality. They don't it's want sex. it to be true. They want to go their own way. Yeah, right. I agree, brother. I agree. Anyway, anyway I, the book I, is called— Scientism and Secularism by J.P. Moreland. I got to ask you this, J.P. You have a chapter yeah. in here called The Five Things That Science Cannot Explain in Principle, But Theism Can. I'm going to let people read it in the book because we don't have time to get into it. But you make a, a brilliant distinction between uh, empirical and historical science in the book. And I think the failure to see this distinction is, is why people often think science has pushed out the need for God. I, I think it's because the modern mind thinks that advances yeah. in technology brought on by our increasing knowledge of how repeatable natural yeah. laws work, that, that our advancing technology somehow means that there's no creator or sustainer of those natural laws. Can you, can you speak to that a little bit, the distinction between empirical and historical yeah. science? Very quickly, empirical science is what is something that can be done over and over again, uh, and it's repeatable. Uh, it's like taking hydrogen oxygen and putting it together and you get water. Okay, mm-hmm. So that's kind of research, empirical science, and so on. But there's a whole field of historical sciences that deal with one-time events, like the death of the dinosaurs or the, the geograph- geological column at the Grand Canyon. And those are fields like paleontology and, uh, and uh, uh, archaeology and, and geology and things mm-hmm. like that. Now, uh, evolutionary theory is actually a historical science. Right. It's not uh, it's so much an empirical science because what it's fundamentally doing is trying to come up with models that explain the history of life as it evolved on Earth. And um, when you take a look at that, uh, it, it, appealing to God uh, is, per, is perfectly legitimate. Uh, in historical science, and even Darwinists appeal to God to support their arguments. They'll, they'll say, if God were a good designer, he wouldn't have made the panda's thumb look like that. Right. Look how bad, look how inefficient the panda's thumb is. Therefore, God cannot exist because he would have done a better job than that. Hmm. Well, if you can use scientific evidence and historical science to, to refute theism, why can't you use evidence to verify it? Right, right. What is that about? Yeah, they're they're admitting that design is detectable in nature. Then when they exactly, say that, that's exactly right. Yeah, and it's been and it's allegedly it's been falsified. So, mm. I, I I just my head explodes. I sometimes <laughs> I just need to take an aspirin and go to bed. <laughs> there's this one other so point, J- yeah. JP. There's one other point that I think is critical at the end of the book that needs to be made very quickly, and you point out that. 
no scientific claims threaten the core of Christianity. Take just a minute to, to unpack yeah. that, if you would. Yeah, 95% of science has nothing to do with Christianity. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. care if the methane molecules got four or 15 carbon atoms in it. It doesn't make any difference to me. And it doesn't matter to science, uh, you know, if it's died for everybody or just the elect or if the supernatural gifts are for today or not. Mm-hmm. So most of science has got nothing to do with it. The 5% that is relevant to Christianity, 3% of it, I would say, has supported belief in God, the origin of the universe, discovery, the fine-tuning, and so on. Uh, 2%, I say, counts against us, but no... That 2% almost always targets the first uh, 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis. They actually don't target belief in God or the core claims that Jesus rose from the dead. Rather, they attack biblical inerrancy and the the early chapters of Genesis being historical. I'm not saying that isn't important. I'm just saying that these scientific problems— are really not problems with our evidence for God's existence. In fact, science has actually helped there, or evidence that Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. You could hold all that and just say to somebody, well, then if you got a problem, just set Genesis aside for right now. Now, right. now yeah. I don't mean that in the sense forever, but if you were considering the gospel... I'm going to say, look, focus on Jesus for a minute. Let's not worry about that stuff. That's that's what I meant by it. Thanks, JP. The book is Scientism and Secularism by JP Moreland. There's so much we couldn't get to. And as you can see, JP is a wealth of knowledge on this. You need to get it. It's a critical book, ladies and gentlemen. JP, thanks so much for being on. Great being with you. That's JP Moreland, ladies and gentlemen. Again, Scientism and Secularism. Pick up a copy today. I'm Frank Turk. See you next week. God bless. We work hard to create great content and deliver truth and valuable insights to all of our cross-examined podcast listeners. If you agree, take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five-star rating so more people like you can find us. Just look for the cross-examined official podcast, three words on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. We are truly grateful for your support. 